Welcome to Communicate Like You Give a Damn, the podcast. Our guests share their stories and approaches to embedding diversity, equity, and inclusion in communications because, I mean, let's be honest, we know the power of language. And language leads to behavior. So thank you. Thank you for joining us in leveling up your communications. I'm your host, Kim Clark. And DEI communications, it's, it's kind of my thing. So let's get into it. Let's learn more about how to communicate like you give a damn. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Communicate Like You Give a Damn. And we have a part two with Paul. Now, Paul was the one who basically laid it out for us, the behind the scenes of what PR took place in the area where George Floyd was murdered. And so if you haven't listened to that part one with Paul, he he basically teaches a class on protest communications, you know, demonstrations, languaging, positioning, supporting, you know, government, you know, institutions and family members through crisis situations like (laughs) the murder of George Floyd. I mean, It was an incredible story. And thank you. Thank you for that. And when I realized after we had that conversation, Paul was, there's more to, there's more to this here. So let's, let's, let's take a a broader lens here and tap into your experience around crisis communications as a whole. And so if you don't, if you wouldn't mind before we get into it, just in case for those who haven't heard your first podcast, um, reintroducing yourself and then we'll get into the our crash course of crisis communications yeah just a quick intro so i'm born and raised in minneapolis and i've been doing crisis communications i as i tell people my entire life mm-hmm. i grew up with a dad who was a county sheriff and so you know police scanner ran 24 7 in our house growing up and so you learn how to kind of think through crisis, you see the calls, you hear the calls that come in, you hear it gets dispatched out and then you see it in the media and you start to understand all the components of it. So I've been doing it or listening to it my entire life, which is, you know, nearly 60 years now. Um, I've been doing it professionally for 35 and uh, it's, it's brought you on a journey. And what you learn over time is that crisis communications to do it effectively, you've got to keep it simple so you can remember and execute it upon it in the moment. And it's many moments that happen. And that's why I've kind of developed my system after kind of learning from some of the people that kind of started the crisis communication genre of PR. Um, Some of the the old school people like Jim Lufus-Cussey, who's a friend of mine. Um, Jim was kind of the first one to start writing about this in the 40s and the 50s, you know, and he starts he starts thinking this through and then others pick it up. And modern thinkers uh, like Hugh Fred Garcia or Richard Levick, who just recently passed, they took it to the next level. And so when you talk to them and you start thinking this through, what I've found is that you are usually dealing with crisis and your ability to translate to other people on your team, you might be called into a crisis situation and lead a team really quickly. And you've got to talk to them about what the communications components are really fast and easy. And Kim, that's why I came up with my system, which conveniently all rhymes. It's called claim it, name it, and frame it. And if you go through claim it, name it, and frame it, you can quickly understand the components of crisis communications. And so if you want me, I can launch into this and just kind of talk (laughs) to you about how this relates. But I think that everything is kind of a case study in applying it in a reasonable manner. 
And well, so I think it'd be interesting to hear because you're, you're familiar with the kind of the early history, if you will, of crisis yeah. communication. So what was it, how did it initially start and what have you seen as the evolution up into and including post 2020? Yeah, that's a great question because if you think about it, there's always been throughout the course of, of humankind crisis communication, right? But as a formal study, you know, PR didn't really exist until the 1920s, if you think about it. You know, that's what they teach you back in college. Mm -hmm. You know, that was the first type of actual public relations where people were hired to do the job as opposed to people doing it on their own. In the 40s and 50s, people started to say, oh, we should be able to manage our image better through the media. And the media was bigger and bolder then, right? You had big media that happened at set times. So mm -hmm. after World War II, people saw the kind of the components of how, you know, certain countries used it, used propaganda, right? Mm -hmm. And the need to kind of counter propaganda. And businesses started and society started to realize that same thing. And so the study of it really started in the 40s and 50s after the war, where people in the PR industry started to write papers on it and teach on it. You know, some of the first crisis PR classes started in the 1950s. And you take that on through and you watch things evolve, right? You see this, the 50s going to the 60s and the Vietnam War and how that was handled or mishandled, right? You see the Pentagon Papers, things like that. You see the Nixon resignation. And we get the, the classic crisis term of Watergate. Every crisis management now gets back to being named gate at the end for that reason, which mm -hmm. again gets to one of my points, which is the naming convention. Why was it called Watergate and not Nixon was a crook? You know, like, how do you name these things and how do they get named these things? How do you proactively use it? And you look at kind of how the 80s and 90s kind of came in the 2000s. In 2020, you know, the pandemic, I think, changed everything, everybody's perspective. Society was kind of humming along. And we see social media come in in the early 2000s, right? And then we start seeing how social media gets manipulated. In the, in, the, in the mid 2010s, you start seeing how fake news became a thing and people like were very, were very comfortable being untruthful. And it's very strange that that became the defining thing that no one pushed back. And that was one of my big criticisms of my colleagues in the PR societies was, hey, we've got to push back against fake news. That's not really a thing. That's just called lying, right? Um, there is objective truth out there. And now we're living in a post-truth world. And we're paying the price for that in a lot of ways. And so when I counsel my clients, I'm always talking about, okay, the pandemic changed everything. Society changed and people are, you know, the whole work from home thing changed everything. So you get about a third of your workforce now that is working from home on a regular, consistent basis. They're not being shaped by the workplace as much as they were. They're looking for different ways to be connected and they're looking for different sources of, of their truth. And again, I always tell my clients, lean into the change as opposed to being ruled by the change. Mm -hmm. And so what mm -hmm. that's telling us is that people are looking for something smaller and something that they can touch and relate to. They're looking to be more connected to things that they feel real to. So you look at Congress in Washington, why is the level of distrust so high? Well, I can't touch in that. I might know my local congressperson, but I can't control that. Where I can have impact is at the local, local level. And so most of my clients are going to what I call local, local, which means make it small, make your connections small and build your base out, as opposed to going to the big outside, come to the inside and build it out. Let people know what you believe in, what your values are, what your mission set is, what you stand for, and they'll come to your business. They will 
come back to your business or your organization. And we're seeing people want to be attached there because they don't trust a post-truth world. Big things are scary and untruthful. Things that I can interact with, I can influence or be part of. And that's kind of the difference we're living in. And I'm seeing this even with municipal clients that I work with. Uh, in Minnesota, that it's kind of the annual season where local cities have figured out that we don't want to be the government. And I'm saying that in air quotes, right? Washington is the government. My mm -hmm. local government, local municipal government should be something that's comfortable with me. So in Minnesota, the big thing is every local community now where we have snowfall, they name their plows. Why is every plow named blizzard or scraper or something like that? Because residents can shape what their plows are called. And then when they see the plow coming down their street, they feel like there's government working for me. And we see more things like that. Again, more community-oriented places, different levels of types of policing, which is a reaction to this. And we're, we're seeing more and more of that. Um, it's a very interesting thing. I'm working with a client right now, which, which is a municipal government, which is trying to make their police station look more open and accommodating and welcoming to everybody in the community. I mean, that's just, that's a concept that did not exist five years ago. I guarantee right. you. Right. Right. And, and so, so with, our, yeah. And so just, just to really level set on what the definition of crisis communications is. Now, do we wait until something horrible happens, threatening externally? Like, how do you prepare organizations, your leaders? Like, where do you start when you're trying to get them, you know, perhaps proactively, like before something happens, or do you mostly get brought in when something happens and then you're kind of repairing the damage? Like what is that process that you have with clients? So Kim, I tell everybody, there's two types of people in the world. There's people who has experienced crisis, right? And they prepare for it. And there's people who are about to experience crisis and are not prepared for it, right? Mm -hmm. Which category do you want to be in? There you go. And so no matter whether it's an existing client that I work with and or it's one that comes to me or I'm trying to say, hey, you need this. I'm telling everybody that your life will change unexpectedly. That's the definition of a crisis, right? It's an unexpected, unplannedful change that you should be ahead of. And so what we typically work with clients on is, hey, let's do this first. Let's define who you are. Let's tell your story and let's tell you the world what your mission, vision and values are. Because if you know who you are, you can act the way you want in good times or bad. And we see too often that people either change who they are during crisis, suddenly they become super litigious or they hide behind lawyers and they do things like that. And their audiences go, well, wait a minute, you said you were this. Mm -hmm. And now look what you're doing. As opposed to moving through a crisis saying, this is who we are, this is what we believe, and this is how we'll make it, make it right. And so typically with clients, like I, with, again, my municipal clients, we will do it twice a year. We will go by a two by two grid, which means that we look at things most likely to occur and having the highest impact. And we put them on a grid and we sit in a room, we say, okay, what do we think is changing? What is a new thing that is coming down the road that we need to pay attention to? And these things can be things like, oh, hey, we're seeing more severe weather. We're seeing our rivers flood more. We're seeing more windstorms here in Minnesota than we've ever seen. We should be prepared for that when the power lines go down. It wasn't a concern 20 years ago, but now we're seeing it on a more frequent basis. We're seeing flash flooding like you haven't seen before. But we're also seeing societal changes, right? Expectations changing. The way people want to be policed, you know, again, that local, local concept. It's okay now to have a mental health professional go on a police call. I mean, unheard of five years ago, 
But we got to be ready for that and then think through, okay, what happens when it goes this way, this way, or that way, when that resource is out there in the field with an officer? Um, I have some municipal clients that send out a community services van to any type of kind of unrest in the community. And it puts out food banks, housing vouchers, you know, the whole thing comes to the scene. Again, unheard of years ago, but that is actually crisis response. It's managed crisis response where we're being more, again, serving people at the local, local level. And again, those communities are doing better than the ones that are still back 20 years ago or even five years ago in their approach to things like community service, policing, things like that. And that is actually crisis response. And how do that you... That is preventing a crisis. Yeah, absolutely. And how do you um, help clients who may be used, used to more of the, the style, the strategic approach of the deny, deflect, deter, or attack, or discredit, you know, whatever all the Ds are that, that some... Yeah. Uh, that people are looking at our profession as professional communicators as spin, as as this deny, deflect, and it's gaslighting in some ways, you know, oftentimes. So walk us through how you help leaders kind of shift around this evolution that's happening, which I'm seeing as well. Like there is such a desire, especially from employees and customers of transparency, authenticity, yeah. alignment to right. mission, vision, values. And so typically when I'm counseling a client, again, I have a, a steady bank of clients that I work with on an ongoing basis. Most of my clients come to me on a Friday, Kim. It's because they know something's brewing and they don't want to ruin their weekend. So they call the crisis guy in, right? Mm -hmm. And I quickly counsel them on, would you rather be this or that? Because this is the choice you have at this point. Of course, your lawyers may tell you, advise you to do X, Y, and Z, which looks like dodge and deflect, right? And deny and all those types of things. And those last a long time, and they invest a lot of your time and energy as a leader, kind of combating them, right? Mm -hmm. Or you can do it's what we do, too. and it's expensive, and it's time-consuming, and it's emotionally kind of draining. Or we can deal with it the way that we, your audiences expect you to, which is to be open, honest, transparent, and live your mission, vision, and values. And this is what it can look like. And using strategic communications, most people don't think you can use communications in a strategic manner to advance your goals. But in fact, you can. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the rule of thumb is never let a good crisis go to waste. So just think about that concept, right? Never let a good crisis go to waste. The crisis can define you in a better way. Companies that go through something and handle it right come out stronger rather than weaker, right? Organizations that deflect, deny, and whatever get weaker and weaker over time, and they lose more and more over time. I mean, just, I mean, again, not to pick on any one organization, but look at the Catholic Church handling of abuse cases. Mm -hmm. I mean, defect, deny, say it didn't happen, right? I don't think that served them well when you look at the number of archdioceses that have gone bankrupt. I don't think you've seen people leave a church as fast as that, right? Societally, people are saying, no, you know. Let's mm -hmm. let's deal with this. And again, it becomes this huge organization that you can't touch, right? It's way far away in Rome, as opposed to something local. And people are voting, you know, with their feet, not into a Catholic church for that reason. Mm -hmm. Again, not to pick on any organization, but that's just a well-known case of what mm -hmm. denial gets you. Yeah. Rather than saying, hey, we had some wolves among the sheep here and we took care of the wolves and lived our faith and lived our values. And this is why we're a good organization. And you see the exact opposite happen. 
And again, those are things, those are decisions made by people in charge that were the wrong decisions. And the more and more that I talk to chief communication officers, as well as crisis comms professionals like yourselves, I find that the counsel that leadership gets is on point, like you're recommending. And yet what we end up seeing from Bud Light, from Target, from other organizations that have gotten it really, really wrong um, and missed opportunities, uh, to your point, like Target had this incredible opportunity in the summer of 2023 when they experienced a day in the life of LGBTQ plus people. And instead of double down, you know, doubling down and saying, wow, we are experiencing what it's like in the day in the life of an LGBTQ plus person. Instead, they backed off and let us as a community out on our own. They just abandoned us. So there was an opportunity there, a huge opportunity to really withstand, you know, instead of moving beyond standing with the statements of standing with, but actually Mm -hmm. withstanding and using it as an educational moment. So the more and more I hear from community, especially chief communication officers who have this direct line of strategic advisement, you know, including the PR agencies that are supporting these chief chief comm officers and also supporting these recommendations to do, as you talked about, um, you know, being more authentic and transparent because the truth is always going to come out and we have to name, we have to own our own narrative. Otherwise we're just in an, in an age where, other people are just going to, you know, it, it's just, it's, it's so expensive, like to your point, like, but I'm not seeing, I'm seeing a little bit more of the, and is this your experience where it's leaders who are in a fear-based mentality, not necessarily the chief comms officer or the PR agency of record that's making the recommendations. Although, Paul, I have to say this real quick, when yeah. Roe v. Wade was overturned, there was a, a slew of articles talking about agencies um, making recommendations to organizations to say no comment. Now, as a DEI communications person, I felt that was the wrong <laughs> recommendation. Like PR agencies need to have DEI communication professionals to better prepare um, their clients. If they, if if you work with an agency of record that doesn't have DEI communications as, as an expertise, as part of the services, they're not, they're underserving you. So you're going to be stuck in that kind of situation. But going back to the chief comms officers, the PR agencies that support them that are making recommendations for this transparency, and this is what it looks like, and you will come out stronger by owning this. Like what, how do we as in-house communicators and working with our PR agencies, or if we're internal, working with our chief comms officers, do you have any tips or advice of how we can kind of shift the mindset of our leaders to get out of, you know, to trust us that yeah. this is the right way to go and then name it? You, what was your, what's your process? Name it, name it. Yeah, claim it, yeah. name it, frame it. But Kim, let me just pull apart a few things that that you said, right? So think about a few things. One of the things I kind of account for with my clients nowadays is what I call post-truth trolls, right? The post-truth trolls, they exist because they can help politicians and or, you know, counter organizations raise a lot of money and profile by going and protesting Target because they're selling a shirt, right? Because it has a rainbow flag on it. 
And if you haven't accounted for that, you haven't done your crisis communications right to begin with, right? You, you take the time to merchandise a shirt, which means that you've probably sourced it a year ahead of time, right? You've had the factory make it, you had it shipped, you get to the stores, you do the pricing, you put in, you know, where's it going to be in the store, all that kind of stuff. That's lots of decisions being made. And if you haven't thought through something like that, that you can guess is going to be somewhat controversial or not, and how to handle it, you failed before you've even started to put mm-hmm. that shirt on the shelf. Mm-hmm. Being out of and touch so, of what's going on in, in culture. Exactly. Yeah. And so if you haven't thought through what the post-truth trolls are going to come out and do, you've done crisis communications wrong. And the other thing is, and what I do with clients is I quantify exactly what the post-truth trolls are doing compared to other campaigns they've done before, how it's impacted other businesses, because you can measure their impact, right? Whether it's dollars and cents or it's mindshare of public conversation. And sometimes it's almost funny how we overcorrect for that. Oh my gosh, they came to my store and they protested. Well, five people showed up at a store that draws, you know, 10,000 visitors a day. Is that really what you want to worry about? Or do you want to be, oh, the five protesters or the 200 people we welcome into our store as new customers we felt because they felt comfortable coming to our store, right? And that's the power of the consumer, right, of, of the audience. And we haven't done those metrics. And so when I've worked with clients in the retail space specifically, we look at post-truth trolls. We look at foot traffic. We looked at dollar value sales. And we compare it to other situations, say, this is what you're going to face. So get ready for it and embrace it and lean into it, right? Lean into what's happening so that you can live your values. And I see too many companies when it, when it seems to get too hot for them, they haven't measured the heat correctly. Mm-hmm, we mm-hmm. need to be able to measure the, the heat correctly before it gets applied, when it's being applied, and when it's, when it's after. It's so funny when you watch some of what I call the post-truth trolls. Um, there's some of them now that, that did the Bud Light thing who now are serving Bud Light again in their restaurants and their bars, right? Because it's a good popular selling beer. Mm-hmm. They made their little hissy fit, whatever they did. Right. And Bud Light withstood it. They're still in business. Now they lost money in the interim, but they might make it back up. But a lot of the big cheerleaders for that have relented. And it it becomes an amazing kind of arc to it. And so when you can point that out to clients as you're counseling them that, hey, you're going to live through this. Don't let this good crisis go to waste. Lean into it. Think about your employees that might be in this community or that community, right? Think Mm -hmm. about your customers, right? And how they feel. And again, we just, we make the matters worse when we don't really live our values. So if Target wasn't ready to live those values, they should have never put that shirt on its, on their shelves. They should have never pretended. Mm -hmm. And again, Target's based here in the Twin Cities. It's, I mean, their headquarters is five minutes from my house, right? I think they, I think they really mishandled that. They could have handled it much better. Yeah, and I appreciate the 20 years of support for the community, but they did not withstand when it was tested, right? And they were not truly close to, they didn't have the right people at the table to advise them of what's going on in culture and what does this mean with with 650 anti-LGBTQ plus bills going on on across the the country. Like you, you have to take... You know, just businesses as communicators, we have the pulse, especially for internal and employee communicators, we have the pulse and we have to keep the pulse of what's going on with employees. And then our marketing, you know, buddies and PR buddies are keeping a pulse of what's going on in, in, you know, externally in the market. And so we have to be at the table and we have to be listened to. 
you know, in order and, to and Kim, I think be strategic. Be listened to, but we've got to bring the metrics, right? And the examples, right? As communicators, we got to say, this is what we see. This is how we see it. This is where this can go. And this is where we need to move it. And I think, I think sometimes we've got to give communicators the ability to have those conversations and teach them how to have those conversations, which I see you doing because I've been to many conferences yep. where you speak, right? And people leave those rooms feeling emboldened, right? But we got to keep that going, moving it forward. Um, otherwise, we're just going to keep regressing, right? That's what the trolls want is to regress back to their level of unhappiness with the world, mm -hmm. whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. um, again. You don't have to go shop at Target if you don't like the shirt they sell. Mm -hmm. you know or just I mean? don't buy you the don't. shirt. It's just like change yeah. the channel if you don't want to watch the show. And just don't right. buy the shirt. You know, I was at Target last, you know, yesterday and, you know, I didn't buy every item in the store. I bought the ones that I wanted and I chose other ones. I, you know, I walked by the ones I didn't want. It, it's not a hard process. Right. right. So it's, right. they have thousands of items on their store and they, they let, trolls kind of push them out of selling the, the one or the two. When you're working with leaders, executives, CEOs, and it's very sensitive time, you know, whether it's a social a crisis, social crisis, or a product crisis, whatever, you know, it may be, <clears throat> um, you know, I, I don't know if you've been involved in boycotts or recalls or, you know, those kinds of, mm -hmm. you know, any, any kind of crisis situation, obviously. What comes up for them that they share with you on where their mindset is and being resistant towards really owning and framing and naming um, the crisis situation yeah. and benefiting from it uh, from a reputational standpoint. You know, as odd as this sounds, I'm going to tell you a couple things that, that people kind of scratch their head and they go, are you sure about that? I will tell you that most executives, when they're making decisions, of course, you expect them to have the best interest of the organization at hand. But a lot of times what they're most kind of like fearful in the back of their minds is how do I explain this to my peer group, other executives, right? People at the, where I shop, where I play, where my family goes, either what's a country club, a church, whatever it may be. That is one of their fears is the social action, social interaction they have to have and explain it to their peers. And so if you don't account for that in your crisis communications, you have failed. And that's one of the things when I talk about framing with clients, one of the things I talk about in framing is what I call proximal communications. Proximal communications means that those that are closest to an issue need the most kind of personal level of communications that it applies to, which tells me that, hey, I can't send an email to someone who just lost a loved one in a car crash if I'm the executive. I might have to go to the hospital. I might have to make a phone call, right? I'm not going to send an email and say, hey, I'm sorry your, some, your loved one died, right? I've got to take care of the person and the person on both ends of the communications. That same proximal communication applies for executives who are making a decision. They have a secondary crisis is how do I look to my friends and family and my peer group? And you've got to give them the language for that so they are comfortable so they can make the decision that's ultimately the best decision. And, I, and again, it seems like a small thing, but most executives have a peer group of other executives that they counsel with. And having to go back into a situation where you feel uncomfortable explaining your point of view or the organization's point of view or feeling sheepish about it because you don't have the language to use or the, 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 uh, the arc of the story. You, you lose. And that's really where some of their fear comes from, Kim. And that's been my experience for a long time. And it's I completely agree with you. 
Yeah. yeah, I completely agree with you. Like, D, this is one of those moments where I say, mm-hmm, DEI is in the details. And I've seen this as well. I've seen the exact same thing. It, and, but what it looks like to us is a bravado, a, a shutdown, right. you know, right. like, you know, we're not doing that. And they don't go into the, the why, you know, and they may not even be able to connect the dots, but we need to see, you know, what's going on more behind uh, the thought process. So, you know, before we wrap up, Paul, I would love to talk to you about kind of the art and science of apologies. When you're mm -hmm. in crisis communications, now in the book, as you know, um, Janet and I, um, uh, you know, introduced the depth model, D-E-P-T-H, which is how to position your organization um, uniquely tailored to the organization on social topics and DEI uh, communication, uh, issues yeah. and topics. And Janet does share an apology framework in the book. And I would love to hear from you as it relates to the depth model. I'd love to hear from you. How yeah. do you kind of set up and make your recommendations on how to apologize in the claimant? Maybe this is in the claimant portion of your process. Yeah. It, it, and again, I always tell people in a crisis situation, we got to treat humans as humans. And again, that sounds trite, but what we forget sometimes is that I'm making a, you know, I'm a corporate or an organization making an organizational decision, but I'm also a human making decisions that affect other humans. And so we have to bring it that the, the apology portion of this, an apology is a correction, right? An apology is an acknowledgement. An apology is saying, hey, something went wrong and I'm taking my responsibility for it and my portion of it. That's kind of the claim of it, right? The claim is what is mine to own? What is mine to manage? What is mine to comment on? All those things, right? What is a reasonable audience member looking for me to do from my organizational standpoint? And how do I go into that with authentic language that does that? That might be the easy part is, is writing the statement and putting it out there because there is a framework for it, right? The hard part is actually working with the human that has to deliver it or sign off on it and making sure they understand what's at stake for them. So as communicators, again, it's our job to understand your executive on an intellectual level might understand this, but on an emotional level, they might not be able to get there unless you lead them through it. And so I always tell people, this is where it gets touchy-feely. And this is where I want you to talk about your feelings, because there will be feelings involved here, right? Which sounds super corny as a counselor, because they want action steps and metrics. And feelings are soft and squishy. But you've got to go with the rational and the feeling aspect of this if you're going to make this successful. And apology involves a lot of emotion. You've got to manage the, the emotion. It doesn't, they, these two tracks cannot, you can't just have one track, you have both tracks. And when have you seen apologies basically make things worse rather than better? <laughs> like what are the apologies, elements of what not to do in an apology? Yeah. An apology that comes too late, an apology that doesn't go far enough, or an apology that is inauthentic are the three kind of cardinal sins of bad apologies. Thoughts and prayers. And so, exactly. It's, it's thoughts and prayers rather than action steps, beliefs, things I'm going to do. And so, you know, it's, it's the trite, easy things that people unfortunately sometimes, ex, you know, accept, you know, thoughts and prayers, thoughts and prayers. You know, every time you, you know, America is the land of the mass shooting, right? And everybody says, well, don't talk about it now because it's too fresh. And there's another one three days later, another one is three days later, and it's thoughts and prayers over and over again. 
do we really want to live like that, right? Or do we want to start having people have a voice and start seeing that? When you see common sense gun laws that, you know, 90% of the population agrees with, we're still not doing anything because we can get paralyzed of the fear of what we might lose. One of my hyperactive trolls, right? My post-truth trolls might come after me and I haven't learned how to be strong enough to avoid that or to deal with it emotionally and rationally. And so again, apologies that don't go far enough, right? They're too late or they're inauthentic. You know, and I, the other thing, Kim, I also counsel my clients on is, you know, you don't have to be an expert in every topic under the sun to make a statement. And sometimes you're better off not making a statement because it isn't your lane, right? Yep. It isn't your thing to comment on. That's the depth we've model. Seen, yep. Exactly. We've, we've seen people talk about things that just, they shouldn't be expected to comment on. You know, I probably don't know about the a famine in Africa. I shouldn't comment on that. My organization doesn't talk about famine. You know, it just isn't my thing. But if it is my thing, I should comment on it because people expect a comment from me. They, they expect my guidance or my point of view on it as an organization. And again, we see people being forced to make statements on things that are topical, but not in their lane. Right. And so, again, staying in your lane can be an important piece of that. So you're not making, you know, apologies for things. And we saw we've seen that with the Middle East crisis, you know, organizations not making a statement, being forced to make a statement, making a misstatement. And, and maybe it just isn't their lane because there's, we can find a conflict so many places in the world to comment on. Right. And there's a lot to be done internally to support our employees, especially those who are directly impacted. Paul, right. I'm going to ask you uh, the same question I asked you in part one, but I'm sure you have a different, slightly different answer given our topic today, is what does it sound, look like, smell like, <laughs> to communicate like you give a damn when it comes to crisis communications? You know what, to, to do it like you, you give a damn, <laughs> Yeah, I laugh when I say that because um, it, it means that you are direct and you are honest and you're authentic, right? And you have a sense of people. And I think a lot of times we start talking in corporate terms or organizational terms as opposed to people terms. And that's why lately I've really been counseling the local, local. Local, local means local people touching local people, thinking about local connections, that human to human contact. And that's why my discussions on proximal communications have been more and more. And having people say, hey, you might have to be out there as a leader talking to people. And I have to give them the tools, the talking points, the skill set to go talk to people. I've had more and more clients come to me and say, hey, Paul, help me with interpersonal communications, intercultural interpersonal communications. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And doing a series of seminars with people on how do I work with people that might come to a nursing home, a hospital, something like that. It can be any culture, any language that comes to these places. How do I help understand them, deal with them? How do I communicate more effectively? Because that is part of crisis response as well. Because a miscommunication in a situation like that can be a huge kind of trigger for a crisis. And they're realizing that intercultural, interpersonal communications is more important now than ever. And again, that is crisis prevention. When you train on that, when you understand that, when your frontline staff understands it, all the way up to your C-suite. And we're seeing more and more of that. I, my business in that area has been just kind of growing and growing and growing mm -hmm. because people need the language and the skill set to do that. Mm -hmm. And again, if it if it hasn't been your community of people and you have to deal with different communities of people and how they communicate and the language they use and the cultural norms that they might have, whether it's verbal or nonverbal communication, 
it's a whole new world out there where you are not doing your job if you are miscommunicating and not putting that into your crisis communications plan. I appreciate your your naming the crisis prevention opportunities because that's yeah. that's a place of uh, that's a point of frustration for a lot of us in DEI in general, but specifically um, for me as an expert in DEI communications. Uh, because we organizations magically have budget lines for crisis communications, but they don't proactively and strategically and thoughtfully invest in crisis prevention. So having Correct. a DEI communications person with your crisis communications folks and working through all that and using the depth model out of our book, The Conscious Communicator, The Fine Art of Not Saying Stupid Shit. That's the name of the book that I co-authored with Janet Stovall that Paul uh, got to see me speak and talk about. So we're kind of giggling about some of the things that I said in that room that day. Um, but it, it, that's, we, we really need to do some paradigm shifting around here. We have to get away from, you know, kind of summarize our conversation, Paul, is, you know, get away from the deny, deflect, attack, you know, that kind of stuff into the claim it, name it, yeah. frame it process yeah. that Paul uses. Yes. And this is preventative. You, you know, don't have the magic budget appear when there's a crisis situation. It's way more expensive. It impacts Always. your reputation, as Paul was saying. It's way more time. It's a time suck. And all of it could be prevented, most likely ahead of time. Still have a crisis comms plan, but do it with a DEI comms person in the room. Use the depth model. Paul, any final words and, and how can people get in touch with you? Uh, you can come to my website, uh, omatnassociates.com, uh, anytime. You can find me on LinkedIn. I have a lot of followers on LinkedIn. Um, I live in Minneapolis. I'm pretty easy to find in Minneapolis. I've been here for, for nearly 60 years now. Um, but really, Kim, to kind of wrap up, crisis communications, again, the best work I do, you never see. Think about that concept. <laughs> the best work you and I Love do- that. Yeah, people never see because That's we right. fix the problem ahead of time. That's right. We've thought it through ahead of time. We've applied the things. You would much rather never see me or see me on the front end rather than the back end of a crisis. So let's do our best work so people don't see it, right? We've normalized good behavior. We've normalized thoughtful conversations ahead of time as opposed to after and we're playing cleanup. Perfect. Paul, thank you so, so much for being here. Kim, thanks for having me again. Appreciate it. Okay, so what popped out to you from this conversation? And I mean, it may take a minute to process, but be sure not to brush off what you just heard. Look, you just need a partner to be with you through this experience and understand what to do next. So I'm inviting you to set up a one on one strategy session. All you need to do is go to communicate like you give a damn the podcast.com and you'll see the button there. The more conscious communicators in the world, the better the world. So thank you for listening. And until next time, let's communicate like we give a damn.